just to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Yes, as your pronouncer told you, people from all over the world support the Peter B. Collins Show, and I am grateful. The latest contributor comes from France. The home of Freedom Fries. And I want to thank Gwen Syrig. I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly. And Gwen, we know France is a whole big country with lots of cities and towns and everything. PayPal doesn't tell me your precise location. So drop me an email. Let me know where you are and what you're doing to spread the word in France in your community about the Peter B. Collins Show. And this isn't quite Radio Nowhere. It's somewhere. It's everywhere. It's right here where you are. Thank you, Mr. Springstone. Coming up later in this program, Richard Hayes Phillips, who did the forensic study of the stolen election in Ohio in 2004. Well, he and some election protection advocates, including Emily Levy, have been digging into the vote count and the process in California's election in 2008 that uh, saw the passage of Proposition 8, which banned same-sex marriage after the state Supreme Court had just found that uh, same-sex couples have a right to marry in California. We'll talk about that coming up. But joining me now at our secret studio here is Sasha Abramsky. He's a writer whose work I've read in The Nation. He's also been published at the Huffington Post, Atlantic Monthly, Rolling Stone, New York Times, Village Voice, and Mother Jones and The Guardian, among other publications. He has a website at SashaAbramsky.com if you'd like to check it out. And uh, we spoke a couple of years ago, Sasha, when you had written a powerful piece about the impact of high gasoline prices on working Americans. And I have to say, you opened my mind, because I was one of those liberals who said, oh, the only way to force conservation is for gas prices to go through the roof. And as we saw $3 and then $4, and now it's back to 3 bucks and climbing, uh, we have seen that some people have reduced their driving. But for many people, this has become a huge expense uh, that is uh, one of the most costly things they pay every month. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Glad that I um, got you to think about the issue. So what uh, subjects do you prefer? What do you like to cover? And what do you consider to be uh, your focus as a journalist, Sasha? I like covering politics and economics, and I've always liked covering the intersection between politics and everyday life. Um, What I don't like doing is inside the Beltway reporting. Uh But I love finding out a political issue and really worrying it and teasing it and exploring how, like, like you said, with oil and energy prices 
how an issue which might seem esoteric or might seem the stuff of the conversations of political salons in New York or D.C. actually has a huge impact on everybody's lives. Um, and I get tremendous pleasure out of going around the country just talking to ordinary people, often in places that most journalists don't go to, and just really exploring those sort of hidden stories. Mm-hmm. Now, your new book is Inside Obama's Brain. And first, I want to thank you because it has no subtitle whatsoever. <laughs> I, I can't take credit for that. I actually pled for a subtitle, and my oh, publisher did. said, nope, keep it simple. And I think they were right. Well, I've been battling subtitle creep because it's gone from a couple of words to four sentences I know, now. sometimes you need sort of an inside insert <laughs> into the book. but so Well, no for subtitles. a guy like me, it's, it's how many breaths do you have to take to get the whole title <laughs> out? <laughs> Glad to oblige. Now, uh, before I say anything snarky or smarmy, uh, tell me why you decided to take a look inside Obama's brain. I mean, first of all, we're all relieved that we have a president who has one. <laughs> because after all, the book about Bush's brain... Uh, which was an excellent piece by Jim Moore and Wayne Slater, was about Karl Rove. (laughs) That's right, and the book about Sarah Palin's brain would have been remarkably slim. Um, The book fell into my lap. I'd done a lot of political reporting around the election. I'd done a lot of caucus and primary reporting in the Western states. And I'd been writing for The Guardian, The Huffington Post, various other places. And I'd also been working on this book on poverty and hunger called Breadline USA. And I finished that book. I handed in the manuscript. The election was over. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do now? And it was this sort of empty feeling. It was like 2008 had been so fascinating journalistically. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I woke up one morning and I got a phone call very early morning from my agent in New York. And she said, are you ready to sit down? So I dutifully sat down because I always listen to my agent. Mm -hmm. And she said, we've just been having lunch with Penguin. And they do this series, Inside So-and-So's Brain. Do you want to write Inside Obama's Brain? And... Even though I was sitting down, I almost passed out because it was such an opportunity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd done a lot of work on the election. I knew I could do the book, but I never thought that I'd get this phone call just asking me if I wanted to spend several months of my life exploring the contours of the mind of the 44th president. And so it took me about one or two seconds. I said, of course, I want to write this book. And um, that's basically how the book emerged. So it wasn't me choosing to do it. It really was just serendipity. It fell into my lap. Now, let me use the, pardon me, the Fox News approach. Well, Sasha, some people would say, who the hell is Sasha Obramsky? Obramsky, I'm sorry, not O. (laughs) A lot of people ask who Sasha Obramsky is, and I say he's a man who lives somewhere in Ireland, but he's not me. (laughs) Pardon me. Who the hell is Sasha Obramsky? Uh, What psychoanalytic background do you have? How much time have you spent with the subject in order to, you know, authoritatively penetrate his quote-unquote brain? I have no formal psychological training, and I, the book is not marketed as a psychological book. It's, it's marketed as a profile. What I am is a journalist. I've spent the better part of two decades writing about politics, cultural trends, writing profiles of individuals, um, and I think I'm pretty good at it. When I set out to write this book, I thought immediately, well, of course I've got to interview Barack Obama, and that turned out to be more difficult than I originally assumed. Mm-hmm. Um, I put in a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails to the transitional press team, then to the White House press team. Did, did you I talk to Reverend of, Wright or Bill I Ayers? I did talk to Reverend Wright. Um, they well, right in the hood. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Ayers, I didn't want to. He's a peripheral part of the story. Tony um, Resco? Re- Reverend Wright, I he did knows, want to. He knows how to get a hold of Barack. You're right. All of these people did, <laughs> and none of, them, none of them did I talk to. I don't actually think, with the exception of um, Reverend Wright, I don't think it, the three that you mentioned are central parts of Obama's story. Mm-hmm. Reverend Wright is, and I write about the Reverend Wright saga in the book, and I put in a lot of phone calls to Trinity and to Reverend Wright's people, and he 
politely declined to, to talk to me. With Barack Obama, I never got a rejection. And in fact, what I got was a sort of series of people ignoring my phone calls and ignoring yeah. my emails, which was the same as a rejection. It became very clear that they, I wasn't going to get the ultimate interview, the interview with Obama. And part of me thought, well, you know, can I write this book without interviewing Obama? And then I thought back to the journalism classes that I teach at UC Davis. And one of the classes I teach is about profile writing. And my favorite profile and the profile that I always have my students read is Gay Talese's profile of Frank Sinatra for Esquire magazine about 45 years ago. And Talese was a young man at the time, and he was given this tremendous opportunity to write a profile of the most famous entertainer in the world. And there was only one problem, and the problem was Sinatra wouldn't talk. And Gaitalese had this choice. Does he fold up and go home, or does he write the profile anyway? And he decides he's going to write the profile, and he uses a technique that he calls the write-around technique. And it's basically the idea that if you can't talk to the central character, you observe the central character in as many different milieus as you can, and you interview as many different people from as many different parts of his life as you can, and you gradually, layer on layer, like a painter adding different layers to a painting, mm -hmm. you flesh out the central character, and you tell the story indirectly. And I decided I was going to do the same thing with Barack Obama, that there were so many people I could talk to. And the Obama team didn't let me talk to Obama himself, but they didn't stand in the way of me talking to many other people very, very close to him, friends of his, colleagues, behind-the-scenes advisors, mm -hmm. fundraisers, and so on. And so I set myself this task that if I can't talk to Obama himself, I'm going to interview every single person I can who knows Obama intimately. And I don't, I don't mean senior politicians. I wasn't looking for just sort of identikit sound bites. I wasn't looking for nice headline-generating quotes. I was looking for insightful stories, observations, anecdotes about Obama the man, Obama in action, Obama in public, Obama in private. And I spent many, many months just talking to as many people as I could about Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the whole process, I thought, well, I'm going to try one more time. And I just published Breadline USA. It had just come out, and I was now editing the Obama book. And so I actually went through a back channel through somebody who had been talking to me the whole time and said, look, send me Breadline USA, send me a letter, and I'll make sure it gets to Obama. So I put together a package. I, I, mm -hmm. I got a copy of Breadline USA. I wrote a long letter saying, look, I know you haven't talked to me. I'm now editing the book. I got a couple questions that I you know, kind of like to run by you. And my daughter, who was five at the time, said, well, Daddy, can I write to the president as well? Because she's been fascinated <laughs> by Obama. She used to run around our house last year going, yes, we can, yes, we can. So I said, of course, you can write. So she wrote a letter, got a pencil out, and she wrote this sort of very charming letter, dear President Obama, how are you? I'm a little girl in Sacramento and so on. Anyway, didn't hear back, didn't hear back. My book went to press, and I realized I wasn't going to, at least in the first edition, get to talk to Obama about a month and a half ago, I opened our mail, and there's a letter from the White House. And I thought, yes. And then I looked at the addressee, and it was to Sophia, my daughter. <laughs> and there was a letter from Barack Obama to my daughter, but nothing, nothing to me. So I was put in my place. <laughs> Is that in the appendix here? I didn't get that far. No, it isn't. <laughs> Early in the book, in the introduction, uh, you say, in his place in the country's history, President Obama is in many ways a successor figure to Martin Luther King Jr. I think that's an important point. And one of the things that I've raised, and I've heard Obama speak uh, four times in person, and the fourth was with an intimate crowd of, what, 80,000 at uh, a stadium named after a beer in Denver. And that was uh, on the night of his acceptance speech, and it was also the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. And it really struck me 
that at that point, with the nomination secure, with the way that he had managed race over the course of the campaign, and you spend some time talking about the Philadelphia speech, I watched that very carefully and was quite impressed by it. But he seemed to be unable or unwilling to really embrace the legacy of Dr. King explicitly. In the Denver speech, he talked around King. He talked about the preacher. He talks about, yes, a preacher and from he, Georgia. He paraphrased a quote, but did not actually quote him verbatim. And I've talked to a number of people about this, and they just brush me off, okay? But it really is a central question for me, because of all of the African-American uh, figures, historic and present day, he is the safest. Um, and... Still, it seemed to me that Obama wanted to make very clear, and Harry Reid's recently exposed comments uh, bring this to mind as well, that he was not a dangerous black man, that he was not Jesse Jackson explicitly. And yet, you know, it just seemed odd to me that he wanted to avoid an explicit connection to the legacy of Dr. King. What are, what are your thoughts about no, that? I, I think that's a great question. Um, when I say that he's the successor figure to Martin Luther King, I mean it in a couple ways. The first of them, well, I mean it in more than a couple ways. The first of them is oratorically, that there are a handful of speakers in American politics in the last half century who stand out for the quality of their rhetoric, for their ability to fuse ideas and delivery of ideas and to reach out to an audience. And Martin Luther King obviously had that in abundance. And you see this with the ability to get a cross-racial crowd of hundreds of thousands to listen to his I Have a Dream speech and the ability of those words to push America in a direction that it might have wanted to go but been unable to go without someone like King pushing. And what I mean by that is King is a master in his speeches at appealing to America's better nature. And he holds a mirror up and he says, look, you want to look like this. Your Bill of Rights says you look like this. Your Declaration of Independence says you look like this. All of the guarantees in the Constitution says you look like this. And yet the reality is different. It's warty and it's ugly and it's unpleasant. And he forces America to look in the mirror. And he says, do you really want to be like you are or do you want to be like you promise yourself you're going to be? And of course, we all want to live up to our best aspirations. And King provides this sort of safety valve where people can come around his rhetoric and they can embrace reform without thinking of themselves as radical necessarily, but thinking of themselves as good Americans. And he provides this mechanism that allows American history to move in a certain direction through his rhetoric. And I think Obama does the same thing or, or certainly did the same thing in the 2004 to 2008 period when he's going from being a freshman senator to being this candidate for president of a caliber that we haven't seen in many, many decades. I think what he did in his rhetoric is he allowed America to let its better angels out. He allowed America to let its hopes dominate its politics for a moment instead of its fears. And that might have been a fleeting moment, but there was a few months, a few critical months in the summer of 08, in the fall of 08, when people were willing to let their aspirations and their dreams soar a little bit more than normal. So in that sense, I think you can say that Obama's a successor figure to Martin Luther King. Coming back to what you were saying about him being a safe figure, I think that's also a very important part of who he is. And it was also a very important part of who Martin Luther King was. Martin Luther King was absolutely adamant that he didn't embrace the doctrine of black power, that he didn't embrace the ideology of one race over or against another. 
but he talked the language of human rights and he talked the language of inclusion. And in that sense, he's very similar to, let's say, Mahatma Gandhi, mm -hmm. or if you fast forward a generation to Nelson Mandela. And I think when you look at Obama in action, not just in the presidential election, not just as president, but going all the way back to his early political days, going back to his first election for the Harvard Law Review when he's running for the presidency of the Harvard Law Review in a racially polarized campus environment. And he finds a way to tell a story about who he is and about who his audience is that is inclusive instead of exclusive. And he finds a way to bridge the divides. And if you listen to Obama, not just in public settings, but if you talk to Obama's very close friends and colleagues and you say, well, how does he see himself? They'll tell you, and they told me when I was researching my book, he sees himself as a healer. He sees himself as somebody who has a unique story and can use that story to bridge racial divides. And I think in that sense, again, he's, you're looking at somebody who's very, very similar in inclination to Martin Luther King. He wants to be able to bridge divides. But you then come to the difference, and the most obvious difference is the environment in which they're operating in. King was operating in an environment where half the country or maybe a third of the country was formally segregated still. He was operating in an environment where lynch mobs were operating quite openly in a large part of the country and where it was very, very dangerous not to be a radical black politician, but just to be a black politician. Just being in public as an African-American man was enough to put your life in danger, as we know all too tragically from King's story. And Obama's operating in a completely different environment. Um, the New Yorker editor, David Remnick, calls him the leading member of what he calls the Joshua generation. And he contrasts that with Martin Luther King, who was the leading member of what he calls the Moses generation, which is the generation that's wandering around in the wilderness looking for civil rights redemption, looking for a form of inclusion, a form of legal protection that would allow for full citizenship. And Obama's working a generation, a generation and a half later, and the full citizenship is there. He doesn't have to worry about segregation. He doesn't have to worry about the hatred of the Ku Klux Klan. It's there, but it's on the margins. It's not a central part of the American story at the moment. And Obama has a different set of expectations as a result. And I think what, one of the things you see when Obama's running for office is he has the weight of history on his shoulders. He's very, very clear in his own mind that he is where he is, at least in part because of the struggle of people like Martin Luther King or Ella Baker, or Rosa Parks, all of these key figures a generation, a generation and a half earlier. And he's very, very clear that he has the weight of history on his shoulders because of that. But he's also very, very clear that he's operating in a different milieu and that he has to appeal to a broad cross-section, that he has to find a new political rhetoric, not just around race, but around economics, around aspirations, human aspirations in the American story. And he has to find a new rhetoric in order to be effective. And I think one of the things about King was he was flexible. He knew how to modify his rhetoric to meet the changing needs and changing conditions at the moment. And I think you see the same thing with Obama, that he knows how to modify his rhetoric to meet the needs of the moment, to reach out to a broad coalition. Um, and I think in all of those ways, you can compare him to Martin Luther King. He's obviously not the same character. Mm -hmm. He's obviously not coming from the same place. But I think there are a tremendous number of intellectual similarities and philosophical similarities, and I think many of their aspirations are very, very similar. And that's a long answer, and I apologize for Not that. Not at all. It's very interesting. I appreciate it. This is an open-ended podcast, so we don't have to put time limits on you or restrictions, and people have a fast-forward button if they that want to true. use it. <clears throat> Sasha, I first saw Obama speak in the spring of 2007 at the Take Back America conference in Washington, 
It was a very interesting day. As I recall, Nancy Pelosi spoke at breakfast, followed by Hillary Clinton. And then uh, I think Obama spoke in the middle of the day, and then John Edwards uh, followed him. I, I may have that order off a little bit. But the high points for me were that John Edwards gave a very explicit admission and confession that his vote for the war in Iraq was a mistake. And I regarded that as a very interesting novel, particularly after Hillary Clinton danced around uh, foreign policy issues and spoke very effectively about domestic issues and identified herself with the plight of working families. She did a good job. But then Obama spoke, and he dwarfed all of them. And he was, in some ways, unconventional in the speech that he gave. It had common elements like anecdotes from people who had hard luck stories and encouraged him to run for president. But he offered an overarching vision, never mentioning a specific piece of legislation, never talking about any particular policy. And what I saw was a blank canvas, a man who, pardon me, was presenting himself for people to project their own hopes, expectations, and uh, policy prescriptions on. And I said, wow, this is different. This is interesting. But it's very risky because I've worked on political campaigns as a consultant, and I have seen as candidates who fail to properly define themselves get defined negatively by their opponents. And that was something I waited for. And it didn't really happen. Because he was able to manage his image and the way people perceived him in ways that didn't cause them to say, well, exactly what is he saying about Iraq? And is this a heavily nuanced statement about combat troops? Most people simply heard he was against Iraq, always had been, and that was enough for them. So now that we're a year into his presidency, tell me what your thought is about the way he permitted people to project on him as a candidate and how it has uh, shattered illusions as reality and the pragmatic needs of governance have taken hold. There are so many excellent questions built, built into that, that comment. So let, let me try and dissect that. And, and um, take your time. I'll listen. I, one of the, I mean, I... I'm, I 100% agree with you that one of the things that was most fascinating about the Obama candidacy was the fact that he was presenting an image of being a radical transformer without that many policy specifics. And I don't think it was a, fa- a false image. I don't think it was all marketing. I think when you talk to people who know him, they say, look, he genuinely thinks in a transformational way, and he thinks long-term, which is a rarity in politics, that most, politi- most politicians at the height of an election campaign They'll hold huddle sessions with their advisors, and all they're concerned about is embarrassing their opponents. All they're concerned about is the next day's headlines. All they're concerned about is a 10-second soundbite. And I spoke to many of his advisors, and these are men and women who worked with a variety of presidents and presidential contenders over the years, and they're not, they're not in awe of him simply because he's a powerful person. But they said, look, one of the rarities about Obama is you'll go into a meeting with him, And he'll say from the get-go, we're not here to talk about politics, we're here to talk about policy. And then we'll have a four- or five-hour conversation, and it will run into the small hours of the morning. And it will be about nitty-gritty policy approaches. How do you you get into unemployment? How do you get around the war in Iraq? How do you work out climate change solutions and so on? And they said, 
he'll come into these meetings and he'll say, don't think about tomorrow. Think about what you want the country to look like in 25 years and then run it backwards. What does it need to look like in 20 years to be on track? What does it need to look like in 10 years? What does it need to look like in five years? And that's, in a sense, an inversion of the rule of politics as normal. And I think voters responded very, very well to it in 2008. They were looking for change because the status quo was broken. And that didn't matter whether they were left-wing living in Berkeley or conservative living in New Mexico or Colorado, let's say. They all recognized the status quo wasn't working. The economy was failing. America's international reputation was in absolute shambles. And then there'd been the, ma the natural disaster compounded by man-made incompetence of Hurricane Katrina. And I think if you put all of those things together, there was this, this growing disgust with politics as normal. And the Bush administration has sort of provided a coup de grace to a 40-year experiment in very nasty, dirty tricks-based politics that had started in the Nixon era, and it culminates in you know, all the shenanigans of the George Bush years. And Obama comes along, and he has this extraordinary speaking capacity, and he has this extraordinary capacity to engage an audience. And one of the things I found as I was researching my book was it was a story about Obama's thought processes, but it was also a story about his audience. It was a pas de deux between a master politician and an audience who, for whatever reasons, in 2008 was very willing to be seduced. And I think that a lot of people looked at this and they saw Obama as literally a fresh face to politics. He looked different. He sounded different. He had a name out of the ordinary. And he represented an opportunity to turn a corner, to just sort of shut the chapter that was the Bush years and say, all right, that's behind us. Let's move on. And so you'd have people in Berkeley who, who would listen to Obama and they'd hear what they wanted to hear. He'd become the anti-war candidate for him. You'd have ranchers in New Mexico and in Nevada. And I, I remember having a series of conversations with conservative ranchers in eastern Nevada around the caucus period. And they were absolutely enamored of Obama. And I'd say, you know, why? And they'd say, because he's honest and he's got integrity and he represents something different. They weren't interested in policy specifics. There was just this sentiment that he represented something different. Now, you sort of ask this question about illusionment versus disillusionment, and it, it, it forms a large part of my book because here's a man who represents the quintessential charismatic politician, almost against his will. Obama actually writes as a young man about the dangers of charismatic leadership, but he becomes this rock star politician in 2007, 2008. He has this ability to generate audiences and to generate money and to generate volunteers for his campaign that no other candidate since Robert Kennedy in 1968 had managed to do. And he has this ability to marshal the aspirations of his audience in a way that no other candidate in 40 years or maybe 50 years had managed to do. And you put that all together and you've got an unstoppable juggernaut as a candidate. And then he gets elected and there's this moment of catharsis, whatever one's politics, on the day of November 5th, you walked around whatever city you were living in and you saw people literally weeping because the day before Obama had managed to get elected. You saw old people who would tell you, well, you know, this is the first president since John Kennedy that I felt inspired by. You had African-Americans crying because they never in their heart of hearts believed America would elect an African-American man. You had so many different population groups who were willing to be carried away by the emotions of the moment in Obama's election. And I think in, in many ways it was like our own Velvet Revolution, that it was the changing of a guard, not just the quadrennial changing of power, but it was the changing of a whole way of doing government. Now, because Obama had managed to marshal all those emotions 
with actually very few policy specifics. I think you're right that there was this risk that when he actually got down to the hard job of doing government, of putting in place specific policies, of building specific institutions, of arguing for specific regulatory structures, there was always this risk that that coalition wouldn't hold. Because there's no way once you start getting down to specifics that you're going to be able to please a radical in Berkeley or Portland or Seattle, let's say. Now, and I'm with you in the heartlands of the country. And I think that's the problem he's having right now. I'm with you there. But I believe he is pissed on his base. And yeah. I believe that by uh, turning his back on the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, for political convenience, he voted for the FISA amendments in August of 2008. And he's actually extended the bad legal precedents and the abusive use of the state secret privilege that was advanced by Bush, Cheney and the gang. I think and I've got, I got to say one thing, though. I think it depends which base we're talking about. He's certainly pissing on part of his base. The problem with defining Obama's base is it defies categorization. So you, you that's have a good pe- point. Well, then let me let me define. Let me let never me def- voted for a Democrat before who loved Obama. So I, okay, I think let it's me a problem let me define the base then as the people who were responsible for his stunning victory in Iowa, and that was the point where people coalesced around him, uh, saw the clear, uh, the clearest message opposing the war in Iraq. And in my view, and one of the reasons that I was drawn to support him at about that point, was that I wanted to reject the idea of a Clinton dynasty. And it was amazing the way he marshaled his forces, even after the setback in New Hampshire, and uh, just hung in there and defeated the entrenched uh, entitlement campaign that uh, Hillary Clinton ran. And so I, I believe that the people who supported him early on are those who are most disaffected now uh, by both the failure on health care, failure in, in progressive terms, uh, and the inaction uh, on Iraq and the escalation in Afghanistan. So I, I think that, that that's the base that I'm talking about, and I do agree yeah. with you that the people who elected him are more diverse than, than yeah, that I, group I, I'm I, talking about. I think about. there are a lot of, lot of different issues to unpack in that one. Um, I, I tend to think, as a political observer, that dynasties are inherently unhealthy for a democracy. And that goes whether you're talking about George Bush dynasties or whether you're talking about the Bill Hillary Clinton dynasty. I think it's inherently a disservice to the electoral system to push somebody into a position of preeminence simply because of who they're married to or who they're the child of or who they're related to in general. Now, Hillary Clinton's a very talented, very skilled politician in her own right. And I'm I'm not saying she was only a viable presidential candidate because she was married to Bill Clinton. But I think the reason she was seen in the early days as the juggernaut candidate, the inevitable candidate, was because she had this very powerful, very well-oiled political machine behind her that had been created in the 1990s around the Bill Clinton presidency. And I think you're right that an awful lot of the early Obama momentum was generated by a sort of widespread disgust against dynastic politics. But then when you come back to the the issues of, let's say, you mentioned the um, war in Iraq, you mentioned healthcare, um, the war in Afghanistan, there are a few different issues in play here. I think that you're right that there was an anti-war and maybe I should sort of more broadly say a pro-peace, anti-intervention base that provided initial support to Obama. And I think it's a very similar base that provided initial support to 
to um, Howard Dean four years earlier. Now, here's where I think the difference lies. Dean had a very energized blogosphere base, and not just a blogosphere base, but it was generated by the Daily Kos and various other young bloggers at that point. And the Dean momentum was good enough to get him through Iowa, and it was good enough to take him through the early days of the primary process, and then it stumbled because that base only went so far. It seems to me that the Obama base was always different from the Howard Dean base. It needed the initial input of adrenaline, the initial input of anger from the same people who had voted for Howard Dean. But to be successful, especially because Obama was a black man who had to convince white suburban America that he wasn't, as you mentioned earlier, quote unquote, scary. He had to be able to convince people that he was a broad canvas candidate. I think he always had to create a broader base than Howard Dean. And it made him a more effective politician. And it made him someone who wasn't just a flash in the pan protest candidate at the beginning of the process, but someone who had legs, who had stamina, who could go all the way. And I think what you see when you when you fast forward to um, Afghanistan and to healthcare, you're seeing that Obama, the president, is responding not just to the Howard Dean part of his base, but to a broader base. And it's a very strange coalition of interests. Afghanistan... I tend to think that the people who hoped he would be against expanding the war in Afghanistan, I tend to think that they were painting their own dreams onto his candidacy because he was very explicit going all the way back to 2002. He was very explicit that he regarded the war in Afghanistan as a war of necessity. And whether or not that's the case, I don't think there's anything inconsistent in Obama's policy on Afghanistan. Well, uh, let me let me interject, because what I find inconsistent is that he, he does have a brain. He's a deep, rational thinker. And over the course of the uh, first months of his presidency, he articulated the obvious objections to our presence in Afghanistan and the risks of adding to it, that there's no central government there, there's no history of, uh, of, of uh, you know, anybody uh, successfully ruling the entire country, there's no history of an occupier uh, succeeding long term. And so he, uh, you know, uh, at different times, ticked off uh, the reasons why I believe his ultimate decision in December was wrong. And so I did not expect him to all of a sudden announce that he was withdrawing, but I did expect to see a more nuanced approach that uh, involved uh, uh, statecraft and supporting uh, a building an infrastructure there, not simply a military response. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if, if, if I'm talking as an observer of politics, um, I tend to think that he was, that I, I tend to think he's inherited almost a no-win situation, um, not just because of the actions of the Bush administration, but because we're living through an ugly, messy, nasty period in history. And a lot of the choices that any executive, any chief executive is going to be confronting are very unpalatable. And I tend to, so that that's me as a political observer. If I sort of put myself into me as the author of Inside Obama's Brain again and try and interpret what's going on in Obama's head, my sense is that he's getting a whole bunch of advice behind the scenes about what would happen both if we stay in Afghanistan and if we withdraw. And I think there's a moral argument for staying. And one of the moral arguments is that if we withdraw, there's at least a good chance the Taliban are going to be in control of that country again within a few months. And there's at least a good chance that there's going to be an unholy bloodbath in that country if the Taliban gets back into power. 
And one of Obama's chief advisors in the in the um, primary process, foreign policy advisors, is Sam, was Samantha Powers, who is a Harvard scholar and the author of a book on it's, it's called America in the Age of Genocide, mm-hmm. a problem from hell. And her book basically explores the moral problem of a superpower standing back and letting genocides go on because, quote unquote, there's no national security interest at stake. And I think Obama's absorbed a lot of those lessons. And part of the Obama foreign policy, I don't know if you can call it a theory or um, what, but I, there's, there's a new foreign policy vision starting to emerge. And it's a blend of hard power and soft power. And it's got a moral component in it. And I think part of the moral component, part of the moral argument for staying in Afghanistan is that the consequences of withdrawal would be horrific. I think um, there's some false choices there, though, because we have to start with the premise of why we're in Afghanistan. And, you know, Bush never intended to do nation building there. Uh, he, this was the visceral response to 9-11, which uh, I did not counsel, but I understand the rationale for it. And, uh, you know, we put in a puppet. Uh, we now see Obama embracing him despite the fraudulent election and the very clear corruption that uh, is endemic there and the uh, cozy uh, relationships that are required with warlords and other uh, despicable figures in order to just preserve the status quo. And so I I think that unfortunately, uh, you know, we we do have a situation there that is difficult that he has inherited. Uh, My point is, is that I wanted to see more of the brain. I wanted to see the rational approach here. And I have two issues. One is, that we're conducting a not very secret war uh, that is undeclared, unauthorized, illegal in Pakistan uh, through the use of these remote-controlled uh, video game drones. I was actually—I mean, that was actually a point I was going to make. Um, Please, Obama. When again, when you when you look at Obama's thought processes here, and you go back to the general election, Obama began very clearly linking Pakistan and Afghanistan as a continuum, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a reasonable. Thing to do because Indeed, the thought, Taliban was invented in Pakistan. A, the Taliban was invented in Pakistan and financed in Pakistan to a degree and nurtured by the ISS, the Pakistani Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And B, the border there is to a degree of fiction. Yes. Um, so, and, and many of the tribal loyalties cross the border area. Mm-hmm. So I, it seems to me that when Obama linked Pakistan and Afghanistan, that wasn't an unreasonable linkage. I agree. Um, if I have to sort of try and analyze what's happening here. And again, this is me just thinking through without any privy, you know, without any access to classified information. But if I had, if I were thinking through why would Obama, who clearly has a very, very powerful analytical mind, and he clearly thinks very, very strategically, and he clearly isn't, or at least I don't think he's somebody who glorifies in war for the sake of war. And I don't think he's a, an armchair warrior in the way that George Bush was. Um, if I have to think, well, why would somebody with all of those skills and all of those personality attributes make the decisions he's making around Afghanistan? At least in part, I believe it's to do with Pakistan, that here's a nuclear-armed nation on the brink with a tremendous problem of extremism. And we don't have many options in Pakistan itself. You mentioned the remote-controlled drones. What? And again, this is a, more a question than a sort of statement. What if Obama has made a decision that we need to be in Afghanistan just in case the Taliban gains control of Pakistan. 
that we need to have an easy jumping off point so that we can get into Pakistan quickly if we need to. I don't know if that's the mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. but I, I, I do think it's too easy to sort of dismiss Obama as many. You, you haven't done, but a lot of the interviews I've done in the last month, people have said, you know, well, Obama's a warmonger. He's a stooge of the military industrial complex. And I don't think he is. I don't think somebody who thinks about the world in as nuanced a way as he does. I don't think somebody who spent his young years at Columbia writing about nuclear disarmament issues. I don't think somebody with the background that Obama has, with the travel experience he has, with the sort of declared sense of empathy that he has, I think it's too trite to say he's suddenly become a tool of the military-industrial complex. And so I have to ask myself, if somebody with Obama's mindset has made a decision that we need to stay in Afghanistan despite the costs, the question becomes why? And I think it's too easy to dismiss all of the things that we don't know as conspiracies. Now, you used a key word there that Obama himself used in a debate in 2008, and that was he said he wanted to change the mindset that led us into the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And this brings me to an overarching point that you cover in in many uh, spots in the book. And, And that really has to do with the change mantra that was articulated during the campaign and the continuity that we have seen with Gates held over as Secretary of Defense, with Geithner, who uh, was one of the three, the Troika, responsible during the Paulson Bernanke uh, uh, address of the Bush economic meltdown in the fall of 2008. And while there was a lot of hoopla, and you write about the cabinet of rivals and the uh, parallels to Lincoln, uh, uh, but, you know, we've seen a real embrace of the status quo and to bring in uh, Summers uh, as an economic advisor, to eliminate single payer from the start in the health care debate, uh, these are all things that spoke to continuity and not change. Yeah. And so, you know, when I think of the cabinet of rivals and I think of the debates over policy in Afghanistan, uh, Joe Biden surfaced as, you know, the most prominent uh, critic of the McChrystal yeah. proposals. And yet there is no one who sits in the inner circle who was uh, opposed to the war in Iraq from the start. Uh, There's no one who has spoken up critically of our policies about nuclear nonproliferation and the way we demonize Iran for wanting to join the club. And so this is kind of my big picture criticism that we were, uh, Tom Frank wrote in in the uh, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas book, that Republicans were sold abortion or, or, or banning abortion and given tax cuts. Well, <laughs> we were sold change and given continuity. That's a long question. I'll shut up and listen to your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I partly agree with that and partly disagree. I mean, I, it, it's funny. When, when I first saw Obama in, in the caucuses in the very early days of the Nevada campaign, I wrote an article for Mother Jones, and I wrote an article about how change without specific policies behind it is at risk of becoming nothing more than the mantra. And I actually thought at that point, when, when you watch the three main candidates for the Democratic nomination at that point, it was John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, Obama. And in many ways, Obama was the least specific about what kind of changes he was, he was advocating. Hillary Clinton was more specific than he was on healthcare reform in particular. John Edwards was more specific on health care reform and job creation and on a few other things. 
Um, and yet Obama, from a very early point in the campaign, basically got a lock on the rhetoric of change. So if you were a disillusioned voter, either a Democrat or an independent, and you were looking for a candidate who embodied something fresh, something new, very, very quickly, Obama became that candidate. And if you were going to go for Hillary Clinton or John Edwards, you had become the sort of preserver of the status quo. Um, now, as the campaign wore on, I think Obama grew into his candidacy very, very effectively. And I think he began developing very interesting, very innovative and very specific policy proposals around the minimum wage, around health care reform, around climate change, around nuclear nonproliferation. There were a host of issues where he began staking out his own claims. And I think he did it very well. I think he surrounded himself with very intelligent advisors. But one of the things that interested me from the get-go was when you talk to Obama's friends and you say, well, is he all idealism because you know he's, he's riding this idealistic moment or is he a mixture of idealism and pragmatism? And they'll all pause. Without exception, everyone I asked this question, they'd stop, they'd think about it for a long, long time. And then they'd say to me, you know what? He's this strange combination of idealist and pragmatist that when he thinks big picture, he's an idealist. When he thinks about the broad transformation that he wants to achieve over decades, he's very idealistic. But when you get him on specific policies, especially around the economy, they said he's very, very pragmatic. And beyond that, he's actually quite conservative. And when you actually listen to Obama's speeches, don't just listen to the tone of the speeches or the timbre, but when you listen to the actual words, and when you read Obama's essays as a community organizer, or you read his memoirs, or you read any of the other documents that he's written over the years, when he talks about the economy in particular, he clearly is not that radical. He's clearly somebody who is in favor of regulation. He's in favor of building up social protections. He's in favor of progressive taxation. But he isn't somebody who wants to shake the tree until all the fruit fall from the tree. He doesn't want to knock down institutions. And I think what's happened here is Obama inherits the greatest financial crisis in three quarters of a century. Now, unlike Roosevelt, who comes in four years into a financial crisis, when the system is basically plateauing, it's so bad that it's going to start bouncing back. By contrast, Obama comes in three months into a financial crisis or four months in, and everything is collapsing around him. The banks are collapsing, the investment systems are collapsing, the credit markets are still frozen. And Obama comes in when the unemployment freefall is just beginning. And I think that Obama looks around him I don't think he panics. I don't think it's in the Obama mindset to panic. He really is no drama Obama. But he looks around him and he thinks, before I implement any of these broad changes, I've got to preserve the system. That's actually very similar to Roosevelt's idea. Roosevelt comes in fairly conservative. He's in favor of balancing the budget. He's not in favor of Keynesian economics. He's not in favor of Social Security. He's not in favor of unemployment insurance. And all of these things gradually, because of the gravity of the situation, come to be part of Roosevelt's arsenal. He, in a way, experiments his way into radicalism. And it's not until 1935, two years into the Roosevelt presidency, that we see Social Security, which is his greatest, most durable legacy. And I think it's the same thing with Obama and the economy, that he's come in with everything in tatters, with this very real possibility of an economic implosion, the likes of which the country had never seen before. And his first job is to stabilize. And he looks for insiders who know the system, and he reaches out to people like, as you said, Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner, who he thinks are going to preserve the system before it can be changed. Now, I'd separate out Sumners and Geithner. I mean, I, I think Sumners 
is a not very nice economist and a not very nice politician, but I think he's very, very effective. Geithner, on the other hand, one of the things that has bemused me about Geithner's tenure is he might be a very competent financier, but he's an absolutely incompetent politician because he has a tin ear. And the most obvious example would be his inaction in the face of these scandalous bonuses to banking to banking figures and investment figures. And I found it very hard to understand why Geithner has hung around so long. Um, and we know Obama's ruthless when he needs to be. We saw him during the Reverend Wright affair. He, he knew he had to cut Wright off completely, and he did. Hey, Van uh, Jones. We saw, we saw it with Van Jones. Yeah. And we've, seen, we've seen a handful of instances where... Greg, Obama, uh, Greg Craig is gone. Yeah. So, you know, when, when Obama needs to sacrifice somebody, he does it. And mm -hmm. that, that's a skill that all politicians need to have. Um, and I've been a little bit surprised about Geithner's ability to roll with the punches because he strikes me as a very ineffective person in a very critical position. Um, and, and, and just to simplify it into almost a cartoon, uh, Obama arrives, the bank has been robbed. And he says, call the robbers. <laughs> We've got to put this thing back together. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. And, I, in I, fact, I, let's give him some money for it. Yeah, I'm not sure I go down quite that far with the analogy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, 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 I do understand some of the anger in the base around Tim Geithner in particular. Um, well, and for me, it's the, the issue about Summers and, and Rubin, who's really yeah. behind the scenes, is that these are the people who promoted deregulation, who promoted the repeal of Glass-Steagall, yes. and who turned a blind eye to the leveraging that was occurring. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for any responsible person to say that leveraging 30 to 1 is a reasonable yeah. risk to take. No, and I think you can extend the analogy to Ben Bernanke as well. You know, uh, he might have done a fairly good job of putting in place proposals to stabilize the system once the system began to be rocked to its foundations. But he stood idly by for many, many years while all the conditions were being generated that would cause the financial collapse. Um, and I, I do tend to think that there has not been a holding to account in the way there needs to be. On the other hand, you know, the more I researched Obama's mindset, the less that surprises me. Mm -hmm. Because I don't actually think Obama's that radical on the economy. I think Obama is very, very radical when it comes to social policy. I think he really believes very, very dearly in equality. I think he believes very dearly in the need for social protections. I think he's in favor of creating regulatory structures that will side more with workers in place of the recent move to side more with employers. I think there are a whole bunch of issues in which Obama is genuinely very, very progressive. But I think on the economy, he's always been somebody who hews to a middle ground where he can. And I think he didn't really give any signs to the contrary of that during the election campaign but precisely because people were so willing to be swayed by the sense of optimism that he conveyed. I think an awful lot of people, in a sense, hoped for more than he was willing to deliver when it came to economic policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know now we might be seeing some of the disillusionment setting in. Well, the, the other thing that I think is really crucial here, uh, Nomi Prinz has been on our program several times, and she pegs the total amount of bailouts in terms of liability assumed, credit extended, and actual cash uh, poured into these financial institutions at north of $14 trillion. And yet uh, we're told that uh, it's just the TARP money, $700 billion. And maybe a little, you know, at uh, credit window number two. But uh, they really have not been honest with us about the depth of the problem and the extent of the commitments that have been made. Well, I think one of the things we saw, and this, this predates the Obama administration as well, 
once the financial systems began to collapse, they began to collapse with extraordinary rapidity. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, AIG, the big investment banks, then the banks themselves, the mutual funds, the mortgage industry, the insurance industry, the credit card industry, one on top of the other. And the system is so extraordinarily complex. And we, we, we kept hearing in the early days of the financial crisis that the system was so complex that even the players themselves didn't understand it anymore. And I think to a degree that's true, that we created this absolutely run amok financial system. We, Kimasabe? We, <laughs> they, us, them, someone. It doesn't, I mean, <laughs> someone created, or it was created. The system got more and more complex, more and more unaccountable, more and more out of control, and ultimately more dysfunctional. And it produces this ton of defaults and this ton of um, credit paralysis and everything else. And there's only one institution in the world with the muscle to restore confidence to the system, or if not to restore confidence, to at least keep it functioning in a dysfunctional way. And that's the American government and the Federal Reserve. Um, and one of the things we saw is this assumption of obligations, this assumptions of risk. So increasingly, it was the state that backstopped the insurance industry. It was the state that backstopped the credit industry. It was the state that backstopped the auto industry and various other industrial titans. Um, and ultimately, it was the state that started printing out vast amounts of money or assuming vast amounts of debt to keep the market system functioning because the private part of that market system wasn't functioning. So I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure how you disentangle exactly how much we now owe. And when I say we, I mean the taxpayer, basically. Mm -hmm. Because you can make, you know, you can interpret it in different ways. You can say, well, we didn't exactly give away money, we just lent money to institutions that was having a temporary problem, but then how do you evaluate... Well, we bought Citibank but failed to take control it, of well, it. Well, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> how, how do you evaluate then whether it's a loan or a gift? Mm -hmm. um, if it hasn't been paid back in five years, do you say, oh, well, it was a gift, we'll write it off? Or do you say, well, maybe they'll pay it back in 10 years? Um, and I think you get to a situation where it becomes almost impossible to accurately evaluate precisely the degree to which the American taxpayer or the American state is now in the hole. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's trillions and trillions of dollars, and clearly this is a problem that's going to be with us for generations because we've accumulated so much debt and we've put so much of our economy in danger by the cavalier way in which we've let our financial systems operate. Mm -hmm. Sasha, before we wrap up, I just wanted to get a couple of quick, uh, quick comments from you. One of the uh, mischaracterizations of Obama is that he's a product of the Chicago political machine. And I take umbrage at that because I learned about politics in yeah. Chicago. That's where I started my radio career. And uh, Boss Daly, the original Mayor Daly, was in his final term when I was there. And uh, you feature Abner Mikva in the book. And he's a great Chicagoan. He served as a federal judge. He served for a while as White House counsel under Clinton. And he became, uh, after being rejected, uh, 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 well, let's see, Obama applied for a clerkship, was offered it, and rejected that in uh, Abner Mikva's federal court. Uh, but they became friends later, and he's a source for you. And I, I just wanted to take a moment to disabuse people of the idea that he's a product of the Chicago political machine. No, I mean, I, I, I get this every so often, um especially from call-ins on radio stations, they say, well, you know, he's, he's corrupt. He's just a part of the, you know, infamous machine from Chicago. And I do a double take because whatever else Obama is or isn't, he's not a product of the Mayor Daley Democrat political machine. He's an outsider candidate. 
He ran as an outsider candidate for the state Senate. He surrounded himself by himself with progressives who had been in many ways exiled from mainstream politics in Chicago. He then took on Congressman Bobby Rush in a congressional primary race in 2000. And Rush, who is still a congressman, was a quintessential part of the machine of Chicago politics, of urban Chicago politics. Obama was hammered, and he was hammered at least in part because he took flack from established players in the Chicago system. Um, when he was in the state Senate, he actually was more friendly in a way with a coalition of Democrats and Republicans from south, from downstate, than he was um, with the urban political machines from Chicago. Um, w when you talk to his closest friends from Chicago, they're businessmen. They're people like Marty Nesbitt or John Rogers. They're not quintessential machine player politicians, mm -hmm. with the partial exception of Valerie Jarrett, who sort of straddles both worlds there. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the way I, I sort of look at it is that definitionally, the moment Obama was elected, he became the consummate insider politician, because you can't be the most powerful man on earth and remain an outsider politician. Yeah. It, it's just incoherent. You have to become an insider once you're at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and I think that's where a lot of it's coming from, that people see Obama in the White House. They see all of the trappings of power, and people very, very quickly forget just how much of an outsider candidate he was only a few years ago. And I think that's where some of that's coming from. Sasha, in the book, you recount two interesting episodes. One is that he voted for the, uh, the fence uh, across the border with Mexico and then told his more progressive supporters, "Give me, cut me some slack here because I'm, I'm buying cred and a little juice so that I can uh, broker a more humane policy on critical issues of a path to citizenship and, and those sorts of things, uh, uh, not caving into the, uh, the people who say that we should deport 12 million people from this country. And I, as I recall, it's also uh, in the same chapter where you reference that point during the campaign where he made a conscious decision not to pander as McCain and Clinton we're talking about uh, a temporary rollback in the federal gas tax as a way just to appease voters. And, and you know, it was a stupid plan that would shortchange the government and uh, wouldn't really help the public. It would cut down on road construction. So I, I wanted to juxtapose those two stories and ask you if you have seen an example of each in his first year in office. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing about the border fence, um, Obama took some flack from Maldef and some other groups when he voted in favor of the border fence. And I, I, it was a very lopsided Senate vote. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was about 90 to 10, give or take. Um, and a lot of, lot of um, the Maldef representatives decided that they needed to see Obama. And they went into the office and he, he sort of listened to them and he listened to their comments for a while. And he said to them, look, there were two senators last year who went on the May Day demonstrations for immigrants' rights. And that was Senator Ted Kennedy and Barack Obama. And he said, look, you know that I will go out on a limb for human rights. You know I'll go out on a limb for the dignity of immigrants. I've written about this. And he, he referenced the audacity of hope and, and dreams from my father's where he'd written very eloquently about how you shouldn't view immigrants as just sort of abstract figures, but you had to hear their stories and view them as human beings. And he, he was on record as saying, you know, the debate is poisonous, it's toxic about immigrants at the moment. But he said, look, if I didn't vote for the border fence, which we all know is symbolic, we all know is 
really just a matter of sort of speaking to people's frustrations about this issue. If I don't vote for this, nobody's going to listen to me. I'm going to marginalize myself. I'm going to take myself outside the mainstream when it comes to serious policy reforms that actually make a difference. He basically said, trust me, give me a bit of slack. I'm with you. I'm trying to burnish my, my, my centralist um, moderate credentials on this. And they gave him it. They, they, they actually stood back and they gave him tremendous sort of room to maneuver on this. And he held true to his word. And he pushed for some reforms of the immigration process. And when he became president, he signed a number of reforms. So that's number one. Um, the second issue, which in a sense, I guess, stands in contradiction to that, is when he opposed the gasoline tax. And gasoline prices were going through the roof. You mentioned this when you introduced me in um, your segment about my story on gasoline prices. And both Hillary Clinton and John McCain decided that it would be a good idea to push for what they called a federal gas tax holiday. So you temporarily stop collecting taxes on gas. And the theory was twofold. One, that voters love anything to do with tax cuts. And two, that voters love anything to do with um, lower gas prices. The only problem was it would probably have taken maybe 10 or 15 cents a gallon off gas. So gas would have been instead of 4.50 a gallon in the summer of 08, 4.25 or 4.30 or 4.35. And it still would have been hurting people an awful lot. And Obama took a chance. He didn't do any focus grouping on this or any opinion polling. But he said, look, this is dumb politics. And he went out on air and he explained why. He said, look, it will only reduce your daily price for that you're spending on gasoline by a few pennies. But the cost is immense because states are going to be deprived of millions or billions of dollars in revenue. They're not going to be able to fix potholes. They're not going to be able to fix bridges, all the things that are done with, with that kind of money. And he very eloquently expressed his opposition to the gas tax. And then they did focus group and opinion polling afterwards. And it turned out that the public was with Obama on this one, that they were unwilling to be gimmicked at this moment of crisis. And I think that those two stories, in a sense, go to the heart of who Obama is. He is inherently pragmatic. He'll give away things that he thinks are unimportant as long as it brings opponents to the table. Um, now, one can argue he gave away far too much on the health care debate. And I would tend to agree on that. Well, but he got all those Republican votes. <laughs> I mean, the bipartisanship was, was stunning. I don't think he was going for a Republican. I mean, I think at the beginning they were hoping for a bipartisan consensus, and I think that died very, very quickly when they realized the Republicans were going to stonewall anything. Mm -hmm. The Democrats could have basically proposed exactly what the Republicans proposed 10 minutes earlier. The Republicans still would have opposed it because they'd made the strategic decision they could damage Obama or break Obama if they could sabotage health care reform. So I think... What he was doing was he was trying to build a consensus within the Democratic caucus and the, and the independents, within the 60 votes that they had in the Senate. And he was trying to build a consensus out of that. And I think that was more interesting um, and a more difficult dance in a way because he was appealing to different parts of his own party's base, to the trade unions on the one hand, to progressive activists, but also to some pretty conservative members from places like Nebraska. Um, or places like Louisiana, or places like Arkansas, and they had different agendas, and their constituencies had different agendas. And I think that that's where you see Obama sort of dancing the dance compromise, going the extra mile for compromise, and maybe going too far, quite likely going too far. Well, he was negotiating uh, with himself, trying to pick up uh, Blanche Lincoln yeah. and Mary Landro and Ben Nelson. And Joe Lieberman, who's the wild card in the whole thing. And, you know, low well, and he should have caged Lieberman from day one for supporting McCain and, and being willing have, to be but, McCain's but, VP. But, but then he would have faced the you know, ugly scenario of being a Democratic president with a massive mandate, but with only 59 senators 
at a point when the Republicans made it clear they were going to filibuster any major reform. Yeah, and but, I think, but here I, think I that's see one of the great tragedies of of the early Obama presidency. But it's a failure. It's a failure to lead and establish yeah. discipline. And the other big failing was to go into the August recess without a defined package, because this, as we discussed earlier about the blank slate that Obama was, permitted the Republicans to throw anything at us, death panels, all this bullshit, because nobody could say, well, that's not in the bill because there wasn't a bill. No, I mean, I I, I think what happened over the summer was so disturbing on so many levels. Um, And I think the Obama administration and the Obama campaign people, including Organizing for America, which was the sort of made permanent wing of the campaign, for reasons that I, I'm not quite sure about, they seem to be blindsided by the aggressiveness of the Republican Party around this. And I was actually listening to a BBC report on this earlier today. They were sort of doing a year in politics. Um, and they said America went crazy. That was how they defined it. And I, I tend to think that was true, that just the most bizarre emotions were unleashed, the most bizarre venoms were unleashed. But I reject this, okay? And let me reach right back here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what you got, but it looks scary. This is the chart of where the money came from to promote the teabaggers and the disruptors of the town hall meetings in August. It was completely concocted. And it has now crept into the narrative as a fact. And that, oh, they're these angry Americans. Well, come on. It was just a bunch of people responding to Dick Army's talking points. It was a concocted, manufactured moment. But it utilized genuine rage. And um, I think that was one of the scary things of this moment, was that a very reasonable package of reforms, which in normal years would have probably been supported by half of the Republican Party, became this lightning rod. And it became a lightning rod for all of the anxieties and angers and rage and all of the inchoate sense that things had gone wrong with the country. And in some ways, it's the flip side of the Obama campaign. Yeah, uh, The Obama campaign, as you said, allowed people to sort of put any of their hopes and dreams onto Obama because he sort of steered shire specifics in some, in some instances. And the Tea Party campaign did the exact same thing. Didn't have its own proposals, didn't have its own policies, had an awful lot of rage and anger. It's a much darker movement than the Obama movement. The Obama movement's about hope. The mm-hmm. Tea Party movement was about fear from the get-go. Yeah. But in many ways, they're mirror images of each other. And it's been a fascinating story to, to watch unfold. Mm-hmm. Sasha, it's great to talk with you, and we could go on, but uh, I know you have another uh, event, a book signing to go to. I'm going to have to run now, I'm afraid. And I I just need to take a minute here to show people uh, who will get to see the video later on that you're seated in front of our Barack Obama Chia pet, and uh, it's just starting to sprout right now. This was a gift of uh, my Republican neighbor at the holidays, Uh, and everybody needs to know about this so that they won't go out and buy one. Fair enough. (laughs) I'll take you at your word for that. And let me close with a quote from your book. Obama is a -a once-in-a-generation political leader. He brings to the White House a temperament and intellect, each of themselves rare among senior politicians, but in combination almost unprecedented. And he has ascended to power at a moment both riddled with extraordinary danger and also rife with peculiar opportunity for a country's transformation. If he succeeds both in stopping the rot And in reinvigorating America's soaring sense of possibility, he will go down in history as one of the country's most significant, most energizing presidents. Thanks a lot for joining us today. And by the way, Dr. Justin Frank, who wrote Bush on the Couch, uh, he's working on a sequel, Obama on the Couch. Look forward to reading it. And he'll be on the bookshelf next to you sometime soon. He's going to join us for a forthcoming podcast to uh, react to some of your comments and offer some observations of his own. Sasha Abramsky, the author of Inside Obama's Brain. 
thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. Many of you know we're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com and check out a special introductory offer. I just got a report. Bafo holiday sales through the Peter B. Collins Show of Organic Wines. And we get a percentage of those proceeds. So thank you for your support of the Peter B. Collins Podcast. So, do the election processes in the United States have integrity? Are the results credible? In too many cases, the answer is yet. This is for your own protection. Better make the connection Cause we ain't gonna let them steal the election So you think this machine is democratic All slick and clean and automatic A paperless process right there on the touchscreen But you never hear the tabulator tweaking Late at night after you was off sleeping A wham, bam, scam, and the program flips it from a cave No way, this is for your own protection Well, it didn't work for McCain But the same election day, November 2008 Produced a very unhappy result for many Californians Proposition 8 was proclaimed victorious. By the official count, it passed with 52.2% of the vote. And as a federal court examines the constitutionality of the process that led to the passage of Proposition 8, and in fact, the constitutionality of the measure itself, the Election Defense Alliance and uh, allied groups have funded a forensic study of at least part of the electorate relative to Proposition 8, November 2008. And joining us to talk about it, Emily Levy from the Election Defense Alliance, and she and her group get credit for a zippy website with a really cool name called WasPropEightStraight.org. Emily, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Peter. I actually don't work with the Election Defense Alliance. I work with Velvet Revolution. It's oh, okay. I've been working with folks from EDA to put together this site. Okay. I, I knew you were with Velvet Revolution, too, but I thought in this capacity it was uh, framed around Election Defense Alliance, so thank you for that. And also with us is Richard Hayes Phillips, who did the study on Ohio 2004, a painstaking forensic analysis, and produced a thick book with a, 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 a CD-ROM loaded with uh, actual pictures of actual ballots from Ohio, and that book is called Witness to a Crime. Richard, likewise, welcome back to our program. Thank you for having me. And thank you for undertaking this. Now, first of all, Emily, uh, the study that we're about to discuss is based on exit polling in Los Angeles County on November 4th of 2008. Tell us a little bit about uh, what led to this process and why we're really just getting around to it now in early 2010. Okay. 
Um, the first thing that I want to say is that the exit polling that was done is different from the exit polling we usually hear about in the news. The typical exit polling, such as what's done by Edison Matofsky and used by corporate media outlets, is conducted largely to be able to predict election results. And precincts have to be chosen for the polling that are representative of the electorate, and then then the results of those polls are used to predict how the how the voters would vote over a broader area. Mm-hmm. This election exit poll, which is called the Election Verification Exit Poll, is based on a methodology developed by Steve Freeman of the University of Pennsylvania, and it's actually designed for a totally different purpose. It's designed to be used to check the accuracy of the official count. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as important to to choose a representative polling place because it, the results aren't extrapolated beyond the area polled, but it actually just compares the results in the polling place where the voters are polled, the exit poll results, with the official count. Mm-hmm. So um, this is done as one of the few means that the public has to try to verify or challenge election results when votes are counted by computers where we can't see on the inside what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Richard Hayes Phillips, in terms of the methodology of your study, uh, you were working with exit poll data that was collected, uh, as the the title suggests, or the, the name suggests, on Election Day. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. At 10 different polling places representing 19 precincts in Los Angeles County. Okay, so 10 polling places, 19 precincts. And what is the total number of interviews that were conducted? There were 6,326 voters who responded to the exit poll, who filled out questionnaires. These weren't interviews. Uh, So the responses were private and confidential. Mm -hmm. But there were 6,326 uh, questionnaires okay. with many questions on them. And what does that represent in terms of, per, of a percentage of the total vote count in that 19 precincts? It was well over half of the total voters at the polls and something around 70% of the people who were actually approached by the exit pollsters. Mm-hmm. So the response rate was quite high. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, do you factor in or out any anomalies? For example, uh, do you think that people who supported Proposition 8, which is an unusual proposition in that it retracted a civil right that had been granted by the California State Supreme Court, do you think that those who voted for it might have been more reluctant to acknowledge that uh, even in a confidential written survey? That's a possibility. I think that they that the chances of voters not responding truthfully would have been far greater if these were verbal interviews. Mm-hmm. That is a possible explanation for the serious disparities that we see between the exit poll results and the official results in these 10 
polling places, which is all the more reason to have a look at some of the ballots at polling places not to be specified in advance mm-hmm. okay. to those who are in custody of the ballots. And so, uh, just so we don't tease our listeners, let's get to uh, a summary of what your findings are, and then uh, maybe we'll pick at the process a little bit further. But what did you discover in terms of the discrepancy between the official count for uh, these precincts in Los Angeles and the uh, count that you came up using this uh, exit poll questionnaire? Well, I examined the official results and the exit poll data for Proposition 8, which banned same-sex marriage in California, Mm -hmm. and Proposition 4, which would have required parental notification and a waiting period for minors seeking abortions. That proposition was defeated. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, Proposition 8 ran more strongly than did Proposition 4 across the state, officially, and in the polling places that we, uh, at which we conducted our exit polls in Los Angeles County. I found the reverse in the exit poll results, where Proposition 8 actually did more poorly than Proposition 4 in these polling places, and because they were both hot-button social issues, I decided to look at them both. And it is necessary when analyzing exit polls to adjust for as many variables as you can. Your sample of voters will never be perfectly representative of the electorate. So you need to find out how many voters who actually went to the polls were of the various age groups that you uh, ask of the voters, uh, which race, what gender, and most importantly, the party affiliation. We did interview a smaller percentage of Republicans than the percentage of the voters at the polls that were Republican. So it is important to adjust the results accordingly, to present the raw data, to show your work as in a math test so everyone can see how you made the adjustments. And then you should be able to look at your adjusted exit poll data as a representative reflection of the electorate. And after the adjustments, we found that the discrepancy between the exit poll percentages and the official results for Proposition 4 were very small. Mm-hmm. In the 10 polling places combined, it was 0.64%. Or looked at another way, the margin, the point spread differed by 1.28%. The difference for Proposition 4 was huge. It was still 7.74%. That 
is a 15.5% difference in the point spread. In other words, in these 10 polling places, the Proposition 8 officially got 7.75% higher percentage of the vote than was reflected in the exit poll data from those very same polling places. Mm-hmm. And this was, these discrepancies were found in all 10 polling places. Discrepancies always tended in the same direction, and I found it very disconcerting. And in some polling places, the differential was as high as almost 18%? I believe, well, the highest discrepancy, the highest differential was in Glendale, and I could pull up the number Mm -hmm. and tell you what it was. I'm seeing 17.7, not identified with Glendale, but just as the highest uh, individual polling place. Um, I I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I'm searching for it as we speak. Mm Okay. Okay. So, um, Emily Levy, what would you like to add here, and what are some of the possible explanations for this significant discrepancy? Well, I want to let Richard talk about the possible explanations, because there are basically four of them, and he very carefully, in the study, goes over each one and why why three of them cannot be the case, and the only one that's left is that the official vote count is incorrect. Mm -hmm. Now, in California, we have a paper ballot or other paper record that is available for every vote cast. So it is actually possible to check and see whether the the exit poll results are accurate or whether the official vote count is accurate or whether the truth lies somewhere in between. And we have been trying to get that to happen and have so far been unsuccessful and would like other people to join us in asking Secretary of State Bowen's office to investigate. Now, at this point, there's a big question of the chain of custody of those ballots. They are legally required to be preserved with secure chain of custody for 22 months after the election because it was a federal election, and we're still within that time. But we think because so much time has gone by that it's important to begin by checking the chain of custody and making sure that it was secure. In many states, an investigation like that couldn't even happen because there are no paper ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, in California, even where people have, where actually where people have voted on the direct record electronic DRE or touchscreen machines, the paper trails of those machines have to be counted by hand. Those are the only um, ballots that were counted by hand for the official results. The, optical scan ballots, the paper ballots people vote on that are counted by riggable, hackable, electronic voting systems have not been counted by hand, and we think that needs to happen at least in a representative sample of areas that that would indicate whether the vote counts are correct or not. Okay. Richard, uh, yes. before we continue, did you want to cite that figure? Did you locate yes. that? Yes. Um, in Glendale... Our adjusted exit poll results after adjusting for party affiliation, gender, age, and race showed Proposition 8 
being defeated, gaining only 39.0% of the vote. Officially, it got 53.2%. That's a 14.2% disparity. And the difference in the margin in the point spread would be twice that, which is 28.4%. Ouch. Yeah. That's huge. huge. That's huge. That's a big... After painstaking adjustment, there's five or six appendices that are posted online as well that show how I made all these adjustments so people can check the math. And again, you can find the report online at the website www.wasprop8straight.org. And uh, eight is the number there. Everything else is letters, wasprop8straight.org. Now, Richard, take a moment here to explain to us uh, you've identified four possible reasons for this huge disparity, and that is a stunning number in Glendale, even greater than uh, what I had seen in, in the summary of the report. So tell us what the possible explanations are, please. There are four possible reasons for a large disparity between exit polls and official results. There could be a basic flaw in the exit poll methodology, there could be many voters lying on the questionnaire. There could be a non-representative sample of voters responding, or the official results could be erroneous or fraudulent. The fact that the exit polls were so accurate for Proposition 4 tells me that there was no basic flaw in the exit poll methodology and it indicates that there was a that the adjusted exit poll results were a representative sample of the voters there's another paper i did on the presidential election and the senate races and the congressional races and in most of the polling places across the country our exit polls were remarkably accurate, either dead on or within a few percent. Mm -hmm. um, and the third possibility that many voters could have been lying on the questionnaire, we have no way ever of knowing if that's true, but the idea that this many people, this higher percentage of the voters, one out of seven in Glendale, would lie on the questionnaire always in the same direction when it's confidential. Not only confidential, but anonymous. They're not even putting their name right. on it and expecting us to keep it confidential. Right. They'd be lying to themselves. They wouldn't actually be lying to us. Uh, it's possible, but I just can't be satisfied with that explanation. Well, and the point that you just made, I think, is worth underscoring, that the uh, if people were lying, they were all lying in one direction. Yes. And you would think just, uh, you know, understanding human behavior without getting scientific about it, that if people felt squirrely about disclosing how they voted that it would break, uh, you know, pretty much down the middle. It wouldn't necessarily be so lopsided. And it's possible that people 
vote not to allow same-sex marriage and have an uneasiness about that feeling, but to to think that it would only be in one direction and that would and that so many people would choose to lie on an anonymous confidential questionnaire. As I say, I'm not satisfied with the explanation. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I cannot accept it on face value and, and conclude, therefore, that the official results are correct and the exit polls are wrong. It could be the other way around. It could be that the exit polls are accurate and the official results are wrong. And what about uh, in terms of the sample size and the uh, percentage of non-participation? Is it uh, statistically possible that those who did not participate in the exit polls made up uh, a large percentage of the the bulge that we're seeing in in terms of this discrepancy? This is one of the reasons you adjust for age, race, gender, and especially party affiliation. It is always mathematically possible that the non-responders would account for the difference unless you actually interview more people who say that they voted for instance against proposition 8 than the total vote count in the official results and you'd have to reach 80 90 95% of the voters probably to be able to accomplish that feat it is my understanding that 6,326 exit poll responders is a larger number than the edison Matoski exit poll used statewide in California. Hmm. It's a large number mm-hmm. and not to be ignored. Now, now let's look at uh, this fourth possibility that the results are erroneous or fraudulent. And ask ourselves, uh, and, and I want to be clear here that we're moving into speculation mode, uh, what could be the cause of this? Now, Richard, uh, as you take this sample from Los Angeles County, the most populous county in the state, and uh, project that over the statewide uh, uh, voter population on November 4th, 2008, uh, what do you see as the probable discrepancies statewide, and should we suspect a statewide defect uh, in the process, or do you think it might be something that is isolated to specific high population areas? I don't really want to extrapolate statewide. If, uh, if the official results in Los Angeles County were off by the same percentage countywide as the discrepancy that we see in these 10 polling places between the official results and the adjusted exit poll results, it would account for two-thirds of the statewide margin of victory for Proposition 8. So this raises the question that you're asking. If the results were wrong in Los Angeles County, did it happen elsewhere? It wouldn't have had to happen in very many other places to account for the statewide margin. And the first thing I noticed when looking at the unadjusted exit poll numbers was this fact that Proposition 8 
was running more poorly in the exit polls than Proposition 4, and the reverse was true almost everywhere in the state in the official results. So I wouldn't be satisfied with only looking at Los Angeles County if I were actually auditing the ballots. But we don't have exit poll data allowing us to compare propositions four and eight in any other county in the state. Understood. What we do have is the knowledge that the voting systems throughout the state are vulnerable to, to tampering. And they're, they're vulnerable in a number of different ways, which have been documented by a lot of different studies, that, including the top-to-bottom review that Secretary of State Bowen's office did a few years ago. And those vulnerabilities have really not been resolved. And so we do, the, the one unequivocal statement that we can make is that there is no way for us to know with existing information whether Proposition 8 really passed or not. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. If elections are not verifiable, that's worse than a fraud which can be detected. That's a good point. Now, Emily, what uh, do you see as next steps here? Do we have to go to court to try to force an analysis and uh, uh, at least a partial recount of the uh, ballots that have been preserved? Do you want to limit it to Los Angeles County? What What's the strategy here to try to reopen these questions and examine uh, the actual data? Well, one of the strategies is first to get enough people to care about this and to speak out about it that the officials who are in a position to, to do something about it will listen. And so uh, there's an unusual situation here. You know, you you have talked on your radio show for years about election integrity, and there's a small, a fairly small group of people who have really been working on that issue in the state and really around the country. This is an opportunity to bring in the GLBT community into the question of the integrity of our election and to bring this message to that community and bring out the anger that that should be there in response to this information. And I think if we can bring this to GLBT organizations, which we're working to do, and to, to the membership of those organizations and to people in the community who are not members of organizations at all, and really get them speaking out, whether it's writing letters to the editor, writing letters to the Secretary of State Bowen's office, which can be done right from our website. We've got a template email that you can um, add your own two cents to and send easily from wasprop8straight.org. Um, bringing it to their... their to Facebook, to their group organ- their group meetings, et cetera, getting the word out, and we can create really a loud enough objection to this. Then I think we can begin to see some, some response happening. Um, that's, to me, one of the, the main opportunities in this current situation is getting more people to care about the integrity of our elections and prepared to take action in future elections. Something like, uh, uh, there will be a marriage equality initiative on the ballot either in 2010 or 2012 um, unless the issue is resolved 
Through the federal courts. Through the courts. federal court system and the uh-huh. case that's going on now. Right. And if we expect any different results from this Proposition 8 vote, we, we need to be prepared to do what we can, and there are things we can do to decrease the vulnerability of the election system, but it takes a lot more people than we have so far. And, so this and is Emily, really a call for people to get involved. And Emily, just in a friendly way, let me challenge you there, because I certainly don't object to uh, activating the stakeholders uh, directly affected by Proposition 8. At the same time, it's going to come off as sour grapes, as uh, whining because they didn't like the outcome of, uh, you know, what most people will accept at face value. And so it strikes me that that this goes beyond uh, the interests of those affected by the passage of Prop 8, and that uh, it's something that we all have a vested interest in, uh, that we need credible elections. We need, uh, as Richard said, that they be operated in a manner that is verifiable. And so uh, I would look for a broader coalition of people uh, who want to know the truth uh, about how voters uh, weighed in on Proposition 8 and and not, uh, not limit it to those who were affected by it. Absolutely. There's no reason to limit it. I'm just talking about kind of who are the first most obvious people sure. to, to get involved. But any individual who cares about any issue that is affected by who sits in the election elected positions in our government and the people that they appoint to a whole, whole slew of other positions in our government should be caring about this because it affects every single issue. If we can't throw the bums out because we can't trust our election systems, then then we can't really make change within the system at all. Mm-hmm. And so anybody, anybody who cares about any issue really needs to consider um, the, the impact of the integrity of our elections on the work that they do and take it on as a secondary issue for their group. And Richard, what would you like to add here? Two things. Uh, For most of us in the election integrity movement, this has never been a partisan issue. I live in the 23rd Congressional District in New York State, where we had optical scanners foisted upon us for the first time this year. And on election night, the count reported in four counties was off by so much as to affect the margin between the candidates by over 2,600 votes, which convinced the conservative party candidate to concede the election prematurely. Sometimes conservatives are the victims of a false vote count. Mm -hmm. The other point I want to make The lawsuit that is in the courts now challenges the constitutionality of Proposition 8 by asking whether or not it violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection under the law. A state constitution cannot violate the federal constitution. And I hear the spirit of John Stuart Mill and his wife Harriet here, and I want to Read a brief passage that is so relevant today from the essay on liberty. Please, go ahead. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any other member of a civilized community against his will, prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. 
he cannot rightfully be compelled to do or forbear because it will be better for him to do so, because it will make him happier, because in the opinions of others to do so would be wise or even right. These are good reasons for reasoning with him or persuading him, but not for compelling him or visiting him with any evil in case he do otherwise. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. That's very powerful. Yeah, it stood the test of time. This was written in 1859. Mm-hmm. So, Emily, I have one other set of questions, and that is about um, the process of, uh, of uh, taking and tabulating the votes in these uh, 19 precincts in Los Angeles counties. Were they all using DREs, the touchscreen machines, uh, with a so-called paper trail, um, or what, what other methods were used? No, actually, there aren't—I I don't believe— that there are counties in California that are still using all DREs. I don't think that's allowed anymore. I think yeah, there's supposed to be one per precinct, right? That's right, or uh-huh. one per polling place. I'm not sure which. Sometimes there's more than one precinct at a polling place, and I'm, yeah. I forget whether mm-hmm. they're allowed to have, have one per polling place and shared among the precincts. So Los Angeles has a, a voting system that's not used in any other county in the state, and um, was decertified in after the top-to-bottom review by the Secretary of State's office a couple of years ago, and then, as I understand it, there was an emergency recertification because they didn't have another system to use. This is not really my area of expertise, but the information can be found probably on the protectcaliforniaballots.org site. That group is the group that actually did the on-the-ground exit polling um, that that Richard analyzed in this study that's presented at was prop 8 straightorg okay. But the votes were conducted on paper ballots and were counted by computers. By optical scanning? I believe so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Yeah, that's my understanding, that it was all optical scanners. Mm-hmm. This, is the same, this is the same system that brought us the double bubble problem um, a couple of years ago that you can find out more about that on bradblog.com if you if you do a search on the site for double bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a, a system that has been questioned in a lot of ways and really needs to be gotten rid of. I think they're in the process of getting rid of it, but unless we stop them, they're going to get they're going to replace it with another optical scan system, and these systems just can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I'll add on, as a result of that. The system in L.A. County is a Diebold Corporation system. Diebold is, has been, their election division has been sold to election systems and software, ES&S, and that sale is being challenged now from a variety of angles um, on an- antitrust basis. Mm-hmm. Um, Velvet Revolution, which I work with, launched a campaign last year called Diebold Return Our Money, which can be, is also linked to from the was Prop 8 straight.org site or can be found at deboldreturnourmoney.com. And we're trying to get some accountability for the failed and faulty systems that that this company has foisted on California and other states. We're beginning with California, we're beginning with Debold, but we'd like to expand the campaign to other states and other vendors of these election systems that really have no business counting our votes. Mm-hmm. We've got to get the, our elections back to where they're conducted by and counted by and observed 
all along the way by human beings. Very good. And uh, Richard, as we wrap up here, is there anything you'd like to add? Only that our most basic and fundamental right and what passes for a democracy is our right to have our votes counted as cast. And it is incumbent upon all of us to protect that right. As we've so painfully learned in this congressional district, it can happen to anyone. There can be a false vote count in any election, depending on who's in charge of the counting. And we need transparent and verifiable systems. I want all the votes counted at the polling place in public view, not centralized counting in downtown Los Angeles or anywhere else Mm -hmm. where nobody really observes the vote counting. Well, and I have one other question for you. Is witness to a crime still available? uh... Oh, yes. Okay. It's still available through PayPal or through the mail from witness2acrime.com. All right. Richard Hayes Phillips, thank you for joining us. And Emily Levy from Velvet Revolution, uh, I really appreciate your work on this. I want to direct people to read the report. It's on the web at wasprop8straight.org. And don't stop there. I urge you to contact uh, California Secretary of State Deborah Bowen and let her know that you have serious questions about the validity of the vote count and the actual result of uh, the uh, statewide uh, vote on Proposition 8 in 2008. And I hope that we can draw enough attention to reopen this issue for a a very clear, transparent uh, uh, review of at least a portion of the ballots that were cast in that election. Chosen truly at random with no advance notice. Mm -hmm. Emily, Richard, thank you both very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Appreciate your continued attention to this issue. Well, it's uh, fundamental, and I care a lot about it. Thank you. I'd like to hear your reaction, too. You can email me anytime, peter at peterbcollins.com. Thanks for listening. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling